This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome once again to Bradbury 100. In today's show, we'll be doing something a little bit different. Instead of a featured interview, I have audio from a couple of events I've been involved with in Ray Bradbury's centenary year. First, I have the edited highlights of a one-off Bradbury 100 Live, which went out on Facebook Live on the 5th of September. And then I have the audio from a public lecture I gave just this last week celebrating 70 years of the Martian Chronicles. 2020 has been a very strange year, undoubtedly the strangest of my lifetime, and in many ways a very unfortunate year in which to attempt to celebrate a centenary. But when I look back over the year, I realise that there have been so many celebrations of Ray Bradbury's life and works, I thought I'd go through some of them as a reminder of what's been achieved this year. Way back in February, just before the pandemic hit, Caltech's Beckman Theatre in Pasadena started presenting some of the plays of Ray Bradbury. But they got shut down by Covid and had to cancel the remainder of the run. It's odd to think that we started this year with no idea what was heading our way. In April, the Los Angeles Times Book Awards included a new Ray Bradbury Prize for Science Fiction for the first time, and it was awarded to Marlon James. A good choice. Marlon had in previous years won a Man Booker Prize and a National Book Award, and was named by Time magazine in their 100 Most Influential People list. Marlon was quoted as saying, There's so much of Bradbury's work that was made into film and TV so he was always a part of my pop culture universe. Ray Bradbury signifies to me a world of unabashed wonder and the idea that the speculative story can still tell us as much about the human condition as any other kind of story. In May, Bradbury biographer Sam Weller was in conversation with fantasy writer Neil Gaiman for the Big Book Weekend Festival, an online event. They spoke of Bradbury's perennial appeal. In June... Bradbury's hometown of Waukegan was due to hold its annual Dandelion Wine Arts and Music Festival. It went online instead and included a reading of the whole of Dandelion Wine, which I took part in. I got given the story The Night to read. That's the one where Douglas seems to have gone missing in the ravine. July should have seen Comic-Con in San Diego, but it had to be cancelled. Ray had been attending Comic-Con since its inception, and rarely missed a year. This year there was to be a celebration of Bradbury, and also his best friend, the animator Ray Harryhausen. The good news is that the famous souvenir book was made available online for free, and had some terrific articles about Bradbury. Oh, and I was in there too. July also saw the start of this very podcast, Bradbury 100. I started out imagining that I might make about half a dozen episodes but I was amazed by the number of friends and fans of Bradbury who willingly agreed to take part. I've now reached 17 episodes and counting, far more than I envisaged. 
As July transitioned into August, the World Science Fiction Convention was due in New Zealand, and the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies was to have a presence. But it was yet another victim of the pandemic. It went online instead. In August, Bradbury biographer John Eller and I appeared on a BBC radio discussion programme, The Forum. We were joined by Miranda Corcoran, whose book on Bradbury's Elliot family came out this year. Oh, and John's latest book on Ray also came out this year. A busy year for Bradbury-related books. Back in Waukegan, the Ray Bradbury Experience Museum opened for the first time, allowing visitors a taste of the full experience that they'll be able to have when the pandemic finally lifts. On Ray's exact centenary, the 22nd of August, the Los Angeles Library ran a Bradbury Readathon, a marathon reading of Fahrenheit 451, with a number of celebrity readers, including William Shatner, Neil Gaiman, Marlon James, and Anne Droyan. Also in August, the Writers' Museum in Chicago gave a sneak preview of an exhibition about Bradbury coming next year, and they also launched a podcast. What a great idea! In September, the Library of Congress explored the Ray Bradbury effect in a panel with John Eller, Androyan and astronaut Leland Melvin. In October, there was a book launch in Buenos Aires for a new Argentinian book on Bradbury. It's a collection of essays from various writers around the world, in Spanish, including a chapter by me, which I wrote in English and they translated for me. I chose to write about how Bradbury was received by critics and fans here in the UK. And of course, there was a new Bradbury book published this year, Killer Come Back to Me, a collection of his crime tales. And just this last week, I gave a free public lecture celebrating 70 years of the Martian Chronicles. And you'll be able to hear some of that lecture later in this episode. But first, Bradbury 100 Live. In order to generate some more interest in this podcast, I wanted to try out a live version in Vision. I got a good audience, including a couple of people who were very happy to talk about their Bradbury experiences. I've edited the event down for audio only, and that's what we'll listen to now. Good afternoon, or good morning, or good evening. It's 4pm here in the UK. And this is a big experiment uh, in technology, hoping that this all works. Uh, we have a Zoom meeting and I've got a couple of people sitting in the waiting room. So I'm going to bring them in. I can see my good friend JKT is here. John, how are you? Well, other than the vampire apocalypse, everything is going fine. <laughs> John, would you like to tell people something about your connection to Ray Bradbury? Basically, I'm lucky enough to have been considered a friend by Ray. I would visit him once or twice a week, which was always a treat. Even though he had cats and I was allergic to cats, I suffered through. I went to many events with Ray, including Comic-Con and such. And we did lunches a lot and dinner and other events with Ray. So I was very fortunate to be part of what was referred to as the inner circle. And of course, that's how I first met you. I went to a conference in Riverside, California, and I knew that you were going to be there accompanying Ray. So that was the first day that I ever met Ray, and also the, the first time I ever met you as well. Do you remember that conference? Oh, yes. What do you and remember I, about it? 
Well, your talk, of course, and just the fact that when you're with Ray, it's like everybody around him are children meeting Santa Claus. At, at that conference, it, I mean, it was an academic conference, so it was academics talking to each other. And then Ray did a presentation, which was, I thought, going to be just to the academic audience of maybe 100 people. But they pulled back the wall at the back of the conference room, and there was a whole other room back there with about, well, it seemed about 500 members of the public there and that was Ray's audience and he'd come to talk to them and of course many of them wanted to get autographs um, so that they formed a very long queue. Were you involved in sort of wrangling the, the queues at those events? Uh, yes that was part of my till we call it job <laughs> over the years with Ray is to be next to him. Something about my oddly tenor voice that Ray could hear through the din of noise with his hearing aids. So he would always turn to me when he didn't quite understand the questions somebody was asking. Well, it's great to have you here today. I wasn't expecting to see you. So I'm, I'm really pleased that you found this. And we also have George Jack. Hello, George. Can you hear me? I sure can. Thank you very much. What's your connection to Ray? Are you a reader? I'm a reader. I'm a college professor in Raleigh, North Carolina. But, but I've been a Ray Bradbury fan for... 45 years, I suppose, when I when I first started reading him when I was a kid. I never met him, and I, I'm always sorry that that, that did not happen. But I've, I've, I think I've read everything that he, that he wrote. I have just about all of his books. I think that the thing that I love about him is that he, he was sort of looking in both directions. He wrote about nostalgia, which which I dearly love, but he also wrote about the future. And so he, he was just had such a broad view. Of, of the world. And I wanted to go to Waukegan this year and, and stop by Indianapolis during his centennial. But because of the, because of the pandemic, um, I was not able to do that. So I appreciate all of these podcasts and all of these opportunities online that, that you all have provided for us to, to celebrate his life. That's really nice to hear. And as you probably know, I, I started doing the podcast precisely because so many events that were planned for this year were just being cancelled. We were expecting that Comic-Con would be a big celebration. And of course, that was cancelled. The World Science Fiction Convention was expected to have a, a celebration as well. But again, I mean, the event took place, but it was online. So it was a very different affair. I hope you do get to walk in at some point. The Ray Bradbury Experience Museum is now open in a sort of a preview form in the city. So they're doing their best. The Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies in Indianapolis, which I, I imagine is what you were referring to. Yes, sir. Yeah. As far as I know, that is still closed to visitors at the moment. But I think staff are beginning to, to move in there and hoping to resume normal, uh, the new normal, whatever that is. Uh, going back to JKT, John, can you remember the first Bradbury that you ever read? It would have been The Small Assassin. Ah, and can you remember the circumstances that you came across the story? There was a bookstore in North Hollywood, California called The Paperback Shack, and my parents dropped me off there while they went to do some errands because I was about 10 years old. And I said, oh, this anthology looks interesting, bought it, took it home. And the first book that really stood out in my mind was The Small Assassin. Can you remember what the anthology was? I mean, was it a collection of Ray's stories? It was a collection of Ray's stories. I honestly no longer have that, unfortunately. I've got three or four hundred other books of Ray, of course. 
but I don't recall if I kept that uh, anthology and I don't remember which one it was. And when did you first meet Ray and how did that happen? Well, I would go to book signings of Ray because he lived in Los Angeles and I lived in Los Angeles. So it was very convenient to go and listen to Ray. I was at one. I had gone up to Ray many an occasion and being a scared to death uh, fan, I would just ask, sign it, thank you, Mr. Bradbury, and leave. One day, and this was maybe 20 years ago, roughly after Ray had had his stroke and he required hearing aids, my odd voice, he could hear out of the din of noise. And he called me forward to help him do a signing at a local bookstore that you've been to in Glendale, California, Mystery and Imagination. Yeah. And it started from there 20 plus years ago. Right. where I became more than just a fan. So you were called out of the audience. He, he was Mr. Electrico calling you up so that you, you could live forever. <laughs> Pretty much. At one time, I collect fountain pens, and I am president of the oldest fountain pen club in America, so on and so forth. I like old stuff, obviously. And I went up to Ray, and I had a fountain pen from the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s. And I asked Ray if he would sign a book using a fountain pen. He said, yes. I asked him which year he would like. And he said the 1940s. And then he went on to tell a story how he had a date with a young lady and he had borrowed his father's suit coat and that he had went out and bought a brand new white shirt. He discovered his fountain pen had leaked all over his brand new white shirt. And that was the last date they had. You, you, yes. you mentioned him using the fountain pen. I was just going to grab a book which has Ray's signature. And what I was going to say is that almost everything I've seen signed by Ray, he used a, a marker pen, you know, a thick felt tip pen. Yes. So, so getting him to do it with a fountain pen must have been really very special. Well, he grew up using them. So for him, it was second nature. Mm. Speaking of using a felt tip pen... Ray, in his final years, was producing his own plays at a theater called the Fremont Center Theater in South Pasadena, California. One day, somebody came up to me with a copy of Dark Carnival, and he wanted to verify that was Ray's signature. Mm -hmm. Not only was the signature off, it was dated the uh, first day of publication, but it was done with a felt tip pen. And I had to break it to him that they didn't have felt tip pins back in the 1940s. <laughs> Speaking of Ray's signature, I, I noticed that I, I don't know when it changed, but there are, to me, there are two distinct Ray Bradbury signatures. There's one from that earlier part of his life, the, I suppose the 1940s, 1950s, which is quite a carefully spelled out Ray Bradbury. But later in life, it, it sort of developed into a, a totally different signature, which I presume was a quicker one for him to sign. Were you conscious of that, the, the sort of the way his signature changed? Well, yes. And it was after his stroke that it changed demonstrably. He spent time with a physical therapist learning how to sign his name again after the stroke simply for the benefit of the fans. There was that transitional period where his signature was terrible. What he had was a, an ink pad and he would do a thumbprint next to a signature 
to ah. prove that was his signature, yeah. which was cute and rather unique. And I have a rare canceled check from Ray that he used his middle name. And I've, I've never seen his middle name used ever before. So it's Ray Douglas Bradbury on a canceled check to obviously a bookstore in Hollywood, California. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen his full name uh, written out in a signature. That's, that does sound quite rare. What we should say, of course, about signed Bradbury items is that, uh, well, some people say that an unsigned Bradbury is more rare than a signed Bradbury because he signed so many things in his life. <laughs> yeah, that was Bill Nolan that I believe said that the first time. Oh, he started that, did he? <laughs> That's great. Thanks for those reminiscences, uh, John. Back to, to George. George, I think you said you're a, a teacher. You're in education. I am. I'm, I'm a college professor uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina. Do you get to teach any Bradbury? I'm a theater professor, actually, and I, I have read Ray's plays. At, at this point, I usually I, I'm teaching more theater history and, and lighting, actually, than anything else. But I do spread the word. Um, to my students whenever I can. I've, I'm usually, during my office hours, if I'm reading anything, I'm probably reading something by or about Mr. Bradbury. And, you know, I always, I always tell my students how wonderful I think he is. So you, you asked about when we first read Ray Bradbury, and, and that brought back some, a memory I haven't thought about in an lo awful long time. Mm -hmm. So I, I grew up in, in West Virginia, here in the United States. And my grandfather was a voracious reader and, and just read everything that he, that he could. He and I shared a love of science fiction and mysteries in particular. Um, and we used to trade my Hardy Boy books back and forth and he would read those. But I remember this, this, the first time I read anything by Ray Bradbury was my grandfather had, I'm not sure where he got it, but he had just a, a paperback. The, the story was The Foghorn, which to this day still is one of my favorites because it has that that connection with with my grandfather and with with it being the first story that I read but we would share reading stories and then we would talk back and forth and I think that's one of the things about Mr. Bradbury's writing is that it, it's an intergenerational sort of thing I mean here I was probably seven eight at the time and my grandfather um, is in his late 80s and still we we shared that and then years later, after my grandfather passed away, my mother and my father also um, were, were readers. My dad in particular really liked Ray Bradbury's writing. And so it became sort of a family kind of thing. I'm not sure which memory I treasure the most, um, except for the fact that when I, my parents are gone now. But when I go back and when I read Mr. Bradbury's stories, I still have that, that feeling that my parents are still there with me reading them. There's a magic to his stories and plays that that extend beyond just what's on the page and i think that that's always going to be true that's why i, I will always always be a, a bradbury fan and will always go read read his works it's interesting to hear you say that because a, a lot of bradbury's stories have a, a kind of a ghostly feel to them even if they're not ghost stories and, and what I mean is if you read something like the Martian Chronicles for instance throughout the book there are these references to 
Martians as possibly living up in the hills and sort of, even though everyone knows they're all dead and they're all gone, there still feels as if there is a presence there. Yes, um, yes. And, and sometimes Bradbury can use that for a, a suspenseful effect. So right. in, in Dandelion Wine, for instance, you, you've got the, the story where everyone fears the lonely one, even though they don't quite right. know who or what the lonely one is. So, the, so I'm curious, uh, how, how did you have your first, uh, the first time that you came across Ray Bradbury and how, how did you get involved with reading him and then, and then obviously scholarship and the fandom aspect of it as well? Um, first reading was when I was about 12 years old and it was simply in an English class. And this is going back to, I suppose, the mid-1970s or thereabouts. The English teacher just gave us a book one day we we'd been given various books to read dickens and shakespeare and uh, jane austen all all the sort of british classics and then one day we were just given this book called the golden apples of the sun which was right. a collection of short stories and i think the reason we were given it is because it was short stories rather than because it was bradbury specifically the english teacher delighted in taking us through the the sort of the poetic language that was used in stories like the foghorn but also a sound of thunder which is the let's go and hunt dinosaurs story right and um the fruit at the bottom of the bowl which is a, a guy who's committed a murder and then begins to see his fingerprints everywhere and realizes right. he's got to go and polish everything and becomes totally obsessive about it now i found those stories totally gripping far more than any other piece of fiction we'd ever been given at that age i'd only ever been given books that were obviously for children and that were sort of beneath me or that's what i felt or right. i'd been given these rather boring victorian and quite ancient texts which again didn't really mean anything to me but the thing with Bradbury is that many of the stories seemed contemporary, even though it really, it turns out they've been written about 30 years earlier, but they had that sort of modern feel. And that, those were the first ones that I'd read that were for adults and that had that sort of modernness to them. Excellent. Sometime later, probably about two or three years later, purely by accident, I was at a sort of a jumble sale. I, I, I suppose you'd call that a yard sale or something. And I happened to stumble across another book by Ray Bradbury. So I bought that and I've still got that one, actually. It's an old paperback of the October Country. So that was my second encounter with Bradbury. And that was what convinced me that, well, this is quite a good writer. I must find out more. But it took years before I ever found any more. But what happened in between times is that I found or, or I accidentally encountered the media productions so I must have seen on television uh, The Illustrated Man the film and then later The Martian Chronicles and I distinctly remember one afternoon being off sick from school and watching television and there was this film on called Picasso Summer. Terrible, terrible film. I distinctly remember seeing that and somehow I knew that that was a Ray Bradbury story and I was really intrigued because I saw it at the beginning it said screenplay by Douglas Spalding. <laughs> How can that be? And that was one of the first things that made me curious about him as a screenwriter because I, I sort of put two and two together and figured that's got to be Bradbury because that is a character of his. So why would he put one of his fictional characters' names on this film? Now, of course, it turns out the film was terrible. Ray hated it and didn't want anything to do with it. So he took his name <laughs> off it. 
and his registered pseudonym with the Writers Guild was Douglas Spalding. So that's what he what he put on the film. Oh, fantastic! Um, yeah, so it's that sort of a, accumulation of things o- over many many years, and eventually I, I got to some point in life where I became quite interested in writers who wrote prose fiction and also wrote for films and television. And I sort of started cataloging um, appearances by these various writers. And so from the American ones, it was Bradbury, Robert Block, uh, Richard Matheson, Theodore Sturgeon. So these were all sort of science fiction fantasy writers, but were also writing for film and television. And that, that sort of became my, my personal um, fascination, if you like. And then that led to the academic study, um, probably about 10 or 20 years later. John, here's another question for you. This is, if you've listened to the podcast, this is one of the standard questions. If you could only have one item of Bradbury with you on this um, mythical desert island, what would you take? And and for you, it it doesn't have to be a book or a story. It can be. It could be an object. You, You might have some memento. I don't know. What would be your one item that you would have to have if you could have nothing else? That's an impossible question. Uh, I really can't answer that. I have so much of Ray's life in my mind, as it were, that I can't pick one item. I really can't. As I'm looking at one of my bookshelves, I do have number three of the uh, Ray Bradbury bookends that were salvaged from his home. And uh, I was... I won't say integral to getting that done, but I helped with it. That's from the home. And that would be something that uh, I would like to have with me because it can be used for raised books or any books. And have they got some kind of um, writing on them? Well, it's got a logo of uh, 451 on it. Mm -hmm. There were only 451 issued, which by the way, to the surprise of the, nonprofit that did them they sold out in three days all 451 of them at $80 each for Mm -hmm. a pair of the bookends and they are numbered number one went to the family number two went to uh, Center for Ray Bradbury Studies and I got number three Uh, the rest were given out as people ordered them that's my story on that but you talked about uh some of the people that uh, you studied. Ray, of course, is interred in Westwood, California, but so many people that are also there were integral in Ray's life. Truman Capote, who, of course, with Mademoiselle Magazine, October 1946, was responsible for the first mainstream publication of one of Ray's stories. You mentioned uh, Mr. Block. Well, he's interred there also. He is in a special alcove, and what's unique is that he was cremated, but his cremation urn is a book, which is unique. And, of course, Hugh Hefner, who in issue, what, three, four, and five, did the uh, serial uh, printing of Fahrenheit 451. For Ray's 90th birthday, there were many events in Los Angeles, one of which was at the Writers Guild, and I was lucky enough to be in a green room with basically three of my childhood heroes, Ray Bradbury, Hugh Hefner, and Buzz Aldrin, of all people. That's one of the memories I'll always take with me. And I got to tell my wife's great-grandmother was called Poncho Barnes, 
who ran a bar where all the test pilots were here in uh, about 50 miles outside of Los Angeles. She owned the Happy Bottom Writing Club, which was uh, slightly notorious, but that's where all the uh, test pilots would go after work from the Edwards Air Force Base. And Buzz Aldrin was among them. And I got to tell him that. He got the biggest smile on his face based on what they used to do there after hours, if it were. Which, uh, again, if it wasn't for Ray, I wouldn't have been able to meet some of these people that I met over the years. And of course, Ray knew many of the astronauts because during the, I, I, I think it was the early days of Apollo, possibly while the Gemini missions were going on, I can't remember, but he was, he was sort of on assignment for, I'm going to say Life magazine. I, I hope that's right. Um, he was sort right. of on, a, on assignment to, to write about them. And so he met the astronauts did interviews with them and then wrote articles about them so he knew quite a few of the the you know the really famous astronauts from that time i'm just going to go back to george one more time you you said that you've read some of ray's plays which ones have you read and and which have you enjoyed i have two collections and again another memory that 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 came back my um my grandfather used to also be interested in old-time radio and i think one of the first broadcasts, of course, this would have had to have been a later performance of it because I think it, it was from the 50s. There Will Come Soft Rains. I think, if I'm reaching back right, the first old-time radio show that I ever heard. I cannot remember if, if my grandfather had it on tape, which I think were available, at cassette tapes, which I think you could get at that time, or it may have just been a rebroadcast, but I, but I think it may have been a little too late for that, which isn't really the question that you asked. But, no, but, but it's a fascinating think, answer. <laughs> but the thing about Mr. Bradbury's writings, he, he seemed to have touched upon every medium that, that was available at the time. So in order to celebrate his, I, I had to do something to, to celebrate his 100th birthday. And, and I saw um, the earliest Bradbury, the book by uh, First Fandom Experience. And I got a hold of a copy of that. And, and that's how I'm going to spend my weekend reading it. And, and I noticed in there that, that they had mentioned that, that one of Mr. Bradbury's first writing experiences was writing jokes for Burns and Allen. I think I had heard about that at some point but I but but when I saw that again I thought good heavens you know he was just he was into everything and with such enthusiasm what an incredible life yeah yeah because of course he went to uh, well moved from the midwest to well essentially to Hollywood I mean he moved to California Los Angeles area Venice Beach that that sort of area but for his I suppose his late teens, he was within spitting distance of Hollywood and he had a pair of roller skates. <laughs> he, would, he would roll into Hollywood um, and he would get autographs. And there are photos of him as a, you know, as a, a teenager, a young man with probably George Burns, uh, yes. W.C. Fields, Marlena Dietrich, all these stars that he just went to the studios, hung around outside the gates and then got autographs. What I would take with me, I think on an island, if I could, although I, I probably would take a book or something, but there was an auction house in Los Angeles. Nate Sanders, I believe, was the name of the auction house. They were selling Ray Bradbury's estate, and, and I got a catalog from it, and it was just amazing to see all of these objects, and I eventually ended up getting, they sold two oil paint sets, 
that belonged to Mr. Bradbury. And I, and, and I got the smaller of the two of them because all I wanted, I wanted to get like a pen. I would have been so happy if I could have gotten a pen or a pencil that I knew that Ray Bradbury had written with. And so I didn't get that, but I did end up getting a box that has about eight paintbrushes in it and, and some, some old um, tubes, tubes of paint. And so that, those are like my magic wands. Though, yeah, I, I know that he worked with them and I know that he used them. And that's pretty magical for me. So the easel and those paintbrushes were in Ray's basement. If you want to know where they were kept, okay. right next to the jar, from the jar. Yeah. How long did they live in that house? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if JKT knows that. I think it was from about the late 50s or early 60s. I think 58. 58, right. When, wow. he bought that, when he bought that home. And of course, he passed away in 2012. Yeah. Right. So it was a long time, wasn't it? And then, of course, after he died, many of the contents of the house, certainly his working papers, his manuscripts um, and so on, his correspondence files, all of those are preserved. Those are in the Centre for Ray Bradbury studies. His library of books and his copies of his own books were sort of variously distributed among the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies and the Public Library of Waukegan. So okay. all of those sort of things were, were, were safe. And then there was the auction that the family had of, you know, all the other stuff, which went through Nate Sanders, as, as you, you mentioned. And then that left the house empty, and that was then put up for sale on the open market. Presumably, just went to the, the best buyer, as happens with all house purchases. George, as a, an, an academic, yes. what do you think the, the future, the legacy of Bradbury is? What, what's he going to be remembered for, in your view? I think he will be remembered as a, a forward-looking writer who looked at the brightest images of, that our future could be. I also know that he warned us about a lot of things. And we didn't pay any attention to him. And a lot of those things are coming true. And I, I think it's that prophetic nature that, for me at least, makes him one of the absolutely the most important writers of the 20th, 21st century. And I, and I would like to think that he will be a handful of, of writers that we will still be reading 100 years, 200 years from now. So do I take it that you consider things like Fahrenheit 451 and maybe the, the sort of cautionary tales of the illustrated man? Are, are those the kinds of things that you're thinking about? Yes. I remember the first time that I came across his quote when he said that he wasn't trying to predict the future, he was trying to prevent it. Yeah. And I thought, wow, I had just never considered that as a goal that a writer would write. And then, and then coming back and then looking at other science fiction. I mean, it was, it was a, a great awakening for me at the possibilities of, of what fiction can do. And I think that probably happened when I was in high school. Who is it? Was it Thomas Dish or somebody who said that the, the golden age of science fiction is 12? That age when, when a lot of us find it. And it's a salvation sometimes, depending upon where you are when you're reading it. Bradbury is a lot like, I'm going to say this, he's a lot like Shakespeare in the sense that he draws on a lot of influences. His language is poetic and forceful and can change from moment to moment. But he's also ahead of his time and out of his time. And 
he grew out of Pulp Fiction, which I love. I, I love the entire genre of Pulp Fiction, the entire world of it. And yet I do think that just as, as we look at Shakespeare, Shakespeare is not typically Elizabethan playwright because he's so far beyond what they were writing at the time. He was out of his time. And I think Bradbury shares that, that same quality. Wow, that's great. Thank you very much. Thank you for asking. I appreciate it. And John, I'd like to give you the final word. What What do you think the, the lasting memory of Bradbury is going to be? Have I put you on the spot again? Gosh, maybe going to events with Ray where there were other people who might be considered more famous than Ray, such as Steven Spielberg, who were not only fans, it was like they became little children at the age where they first read Ray, mm-hmm. when they would meet or be with Ray. It just amazed me at the breadth of people that Ray influenced. We were at JPL. You literally had rocket scientists who would come up to Ray and tell him they became a rocket scientist because of Ray, because of reading Martian Chronicles. English teachers, English professors, college professors, the same thing. They chose their profession based on having read Ray as a child. So that golden age of 12... (laughs) (laughs) or or thereabouts, Yes, those 12-year-olds grow up and become something or other. I think all of us who who encountered Bradbury's stories at an early age then went on to do something. Fantastic. John, thank you very much for calling in. I'm really pleased to speak to you again. I hope we get to meet again one day. (laughs) Maybe in Illinois or Indiana. Maybe, hopefully one day. Thank you very much. Come to North Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) My family came from Georgia, so uh, we're close. Uh, oh, fantastic. <laughs> and George, thank you very much for joining me today as well. Thanks. Well, thank you. I was just going to listen, but I, I'm, I'm honored to, to have had something to say and, and to meet both of you online. I appreciate this so much. Special thanks to John King Tarpinian and George Jack, who so generously gave me their memories and experiences of Bradbury. Now let's have a listen to my lecture on the Martian Chronicles at 70. Now when I say lecture, don't be put off, it's not a highly academic piece, it's just a public talk for the general reader or listener. This was a live, online, illustrated talk delivered as part of ArtsFest 2020 from the University of Wolverhampton. The full talk, complete with illustrations, will be online via YouTube in the near future. But here I'll give you a lightly edited, audio-only version. Welcome to The Martian Chronicles at 70. This year, 2020, is the centenary of the birth of Ray Bradbury, Bradbury is perhaps better known for another book, which is Fahrenheit 451, um, a book which I think Bradbury himself saw as being his legacy and the one that would probably be remembered long after he'd been forgotten, as it were. Um, Fahrenheit 451 still hangs around sitting alongside other dystopian fiction, which has seen a bit of a resurgence in recent years. Um, So you'll often see it alongside... Uh, 1984, Brave New World, um, and so on. But I'm here to speak up for The Martian Chronicles. So what is The Martian Chronicles? Well, it's a book first published in 1950 from the American publisher Doubleday, based in New York. 
It was actually Bradbury's second book. His first book came from a small publisher and was a collection of horror stories and uh, dark tales. But The Martian Chronicles was presented uh, more as a novel, even though, as we'll see, it was really a collection of short stories stitched together. Um, it was a major achievement for Bradbury at the time because science fiction in the US in the 19... well, the beginning of the 1950s was not seen as being a very prestige genre. Um, and indeed, Doubleday were kind of making a bit of a land grab for the genre by launching their Doubleday science fiction line, and this was one of the, one of the key books um, to be launched that year. But this humble little label, Doubleday Science Fiction, is something that gave Bradbury some cause for concern because he didn't think the book was science fiction. He saw the book as pure fantasy, and I'll say a bit more about that later on. So, The Martian Chronicles, what exactly is it? Well, it's a book which looks to the future. It's set almost entirely on the planet Mars, starting in the year 1999, which to us is the dim and distant past, but at the time of publication was really the distant future. Um, so the book looks to the future and presents mankind's attempt to um, land on Mars, colonise Mars, uh, take it over, basically. But the way the book goes about it is by looking to the past. Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that. There's, there's two or three dimensions to the way that Bradbury looks to the past in order to present the future. I'm reminded of something that Marshall McLuhan said. McLuhan was a, a sort of a media guru back in the 1960s. Um, and one of the many things that he said is that when faced with a new situation, we tend always to attach ourselves to the objects, to the flavour of the most recent past. Now McLuhan was talking mostly about our inventions, so a, a classic example from McLuhan is uh, when the motor car was invented, the first cars looked like uh, the kind of carriages that were being drawn by horses around the same time. Um, and indeed the early cars were called horseless carriages, so everything that we create that is new we present it by referring to the past. We somehow take comfort from that, or maybe it's that we don't really know what the future holds, so we're safer to look in the rearview mirror. And this is um, McLuhan's rearview mirror metaphor. And I think that's what Bradbury does in The Martian Chronicles. He tries to present a view of the future, but it's very much a looking back at where we've come from. Among the things that The Martian Chronicles looks back to is the earlier representation of Mars that Bradbury would have seen as a child um, growing up, the books of Edgar Rice Burroughs set on Mars, such as A Princess of Mars. In fact, Bradbury's Martian Chronicles could almost be part of the Burroughs universe. It, it occupies a very similar physical space. Um, Bradbury's Mars is full of Martians, it's full of canals, it's um, full of crystal pillars and cities. Um, very similar to what's presented in Burroughs's work from early in the 20th century. Burroughs, in turn, was very much influenced by the very popular view at the early part of the 20th century that Mars was inhabited, and that was promoted very much by the astronomer Percival Lowell, um, who claimed that Mars was teeming with life because when he turned his telescope onto Mars, he could see canals. Now he, in turn, was influenced by an earlier astronomer, 
Schiaparelli in Italian, um, who had seen channels on Mars. Not canals, but channels. And unfortunately, the Italian word for channel translated into English was translated as canal. And so people who read Schiaparelli in translation thought he was talking about canals, and canals have connotation of man-madeness, manufacture. So um, Lowell took this really quite literally, and he saw these canals, and he built up a whole model of how the Martians must be living on the planet. Of course, it all turns out to be false, um, and certainly by 1950, that was known to be not a scientific view at all. But nevertheless, this is the, the kind of influence that informs Bradbury's Martian Chronicles. So even though Bradbury publishes the book in 1950, it's very much based on a Mars that is long gone um, and w was only ever a fantasy to begin with. So that's what Bradbury means when he says the Martian Chronicles is fantasy, not at all science fiction. There's another way that the Martian Chronicles looks backwards. It looks back to Frederick Turner's idea of the American frontier. The idea that uh, the people of the United States have their special character, whatever that is, um, precisely and uniquely because of the way their country was built by uh, people settling first on the East Coast and then progressively working their way west, uh, conquering all in their path and gradually taking over most of the continent. Um, Turner's model um, of the American frontier is something that, that really has echoes all the way through the 20th century. John F. Kennedy's The New Frontier is an echo of Turner. Star Trek's Space the Final Frontier is an echo of Turner. Um, and even in the internet age we have things like the Electronic Frontier Foundation. So the whole idea of a frontier um, really does seem to be quite deeply uh, rooted in the American outlook. And Bradbury really takes the American frontier, and he simply transports it into space. So the Martian Chronicles, in a way, is a retelling of American history, but on the planet Mars. So these are some of the ways that the book is looking to the past. There's one other way that the Martian Chronicles looks to the past, and that is um, because of the way the, the book is built out of stories which already existed before the book existed. And I'll say something more about that in a moment. Just before moving on to that, though, um, here's a quote from Borges, Jorge Luis Borges. Po apologies for my terrible Spanish pronunciation. He wrote an introduction to the Martian Chronicles for an edition that was published in Argentina. And uh, as part of the introduction, he wrote the following. Bradbury writes 2004 and we feel the gravitation, the fatigue, the vast and shifting accumulation of the past, Shakespeare's dark, backward and abysm of time. So Borges very much sees that the Martian Chronicles is looking back at the, the baggage that humanity takes with it when it tries to move forward into, into outer space. And that's really what the Martian Chronicles is about. It's about the future, but it's about how we always have the baggage of the past with us and we can barely escape from it. And that holds us back and interferes with our ability to move forward. In more literal terms, though, let's have a look at some of the stories that make up the Martian Chronicles. And as I say, many of these were published separately before the book existed. So the book came out in 1950, but many of the stories in the book came out prior to that. Um, some of them were brand new, hadn't been published before, but many of them had. 
Um, and this was really a, a kind of a, an artefact of how publishing tended to work back in those days. There were pulp magazines, which were um, the fiction for the working classes, for the poor man. Um, and then there was literary fiction, which was published in books for the, for the elite, if you like. Authors um, could sometimes have two bites at the, at the cherry. If they were able to sell their work initially to magazines and then sell it again to books, they could you know, get double the income. Well, maybe not double in financial terms, but they could get two lots of income from that. And Bradbury was one of many writers who took advantage of that. So he wrote primarily short stories, which he sold to various magazines, many of them pulp magazines, some of them more highbrow magazines, to be fair. Um, and he also then packaged his stories together and put them out as books. That's how most of his career uh, operated. He wrote a few novels, mostly though he wrote short stories and compiled short story collections. Now, The Martian Chronicles is a strange beast because it looks for all the world as if it is a novel. But it isn't. It's really a collection of short stories and they're stitched together with little joining passages, passages or bridge passages, can't say it, bridge passages that get us from one story to another. But as I say, many of the stories had a previous life in magazines. So I'll just go through a few of the stories and give you a flavour of the sort of the key plot points of the Martian Chronicles. The first real story in the book is called Illa, which was first published, as we see here, under a different title in a magazine called Maclean's. Um, and this represents the first attempt by humans to conquer Mars. But it's told from the point of view of the Martians. And this is one of the things that the book does really well. It presents not the Earth view, but the Martian view. And this particular story is told through the viewpoint of a Martian woman who has a strange dream of an, an odd man who comes landing um, nearby in the neighbourhood. Strange dream. What she's actually doing is dreaming the landing of the first astronauts. Her husband, who is rather jealous of this, um, simply goes out and kills them. So one nil to the Martians. The, Mar <laughs> the Martians have seen off the first Earth landing, barely even noticing that these Earth people had arrived. But the story is presented through the viewpoint of the Martians, which is a really nice way of doing it. The next major event in the book is from a story called The Earthmen. Um, again, a story which had been published it previously to the book, been published two years earlier. Um, the Earthmen basically has another set of astronauts arriving on Mars. Um, they find themselves in what, for all intents and purposes, is a lunatic asylum. The Martians don't think they're from Earth at all. They keep saying, we're from that other planet. And the Martians think they must be mad. So they lock them up. And that's the end of them. 2-0 to the Martians now. Then comes another chapter, Mars is Heaven, or actually in the book it's called The Third Expedition, but it had been published two years earlier under the title Mars is Heaven. And in this one, a group of, group of astronauts arrive on Mars and they find there's a small American town there. And it's populated by people that they recognise. And it turns out basically anybody they knew who has died is now here on Mars. So for all the world it looks as if Mars is heaven and hence the title of the story. Turns out it's an illusion. It's an illusion presented to them by the Martians and the Martians use it to draw them in and then, you've guessed it, kill them off. So another failure. 
And this is one of the remarkable things about the Martian Chronicles. It presents this attempt to colonise a world by us, and we fail again and again and again. Um, there comes a turning point, which I'll get to in a moment, but for the most part we're talking about abject failure um, in trying to breach this new frontier. I'll take a little break from summarising the plots to say something about the influence of Mars is Heaven. Um, no less a person than Stephen King, the horror writer, has um, said a lot of great things about Mars is Heaven. Um, this is how he describes the story. A night of creeping horror, a night of hopeless screams and belated terror, because Mars isn't heaven after all. Mars is a hell of hate and deception and murder. Now, Stephen King first encountered the story, he tells us, in his book Dance Macabre. He first encountered the story in a radio dramatisation that he heard when he was about five years old, and he says it scared the bejesus out of him. So um, Stephen King, great horror author, was influenced at a very early age by this story, which appears for all the world to be science fiction, but it's really a horror story. It just happens to be set on Mars. Um, by the way, Stephen King has also said, and I quote, without Ray Bradbury, there is no Stephen King. So he's deadly serious about the influence that Bradbury's work had on him as a beginning writer. Let's move on through some of the other stories. A big turning point in the book is the story And the Moon Be Still As Bright. This is the one that represents the first success, if you like, for the people of Earth. Um, another expedition arrives on Mars. This is the fourth one now. Um, and this one successfully gets a foothold on the planet. How do they do it? Well, it happens purely by accident. It turns out the astronauts, the space travellers, have brought disease with them, and the Martians are wiped out. And they don't die in any glorious way, they just die of chickenpox. Um, now, clearly what Bradbury is doing here, he is representing terrible moment from American history when the Europeans came to North America bringing with them things like smallpox um, and other diseases and decimating the native population of North America. Um, so a, a dreadful moment if you like, but it does mean in the context of the book this represents something of a wiping clean of the slate and allowing Mars to be something of a, well it's a mixed metaphor, but to be a blank canvas um, which humanity can now paint its own path onto. But there's one member of the team, one member of the team of astronauts who is very sympathetic to the plight of the Martians and he insists on learning about the Martians, learning about their culture, learning about their ways and he ends up becoming a Martian, or at least he thinks he does. Um, the story is ambiguous as to whether he really is possessed by a Martian or whether he's perhaps just gone a bit mad. Um, but it's a very powerful story and in the end he has to be killed. He has to be taken out uh, by his own captain um, because it's the only way of resolving a terrible situation. So this story is a major turning point in the novel. It's a success for humankind but 
what a price is paid for that success. Another story, I'm, I'm skipping quite a few chapters of the book at this point because there isn't time to go through all of them. I just want to mention a few sort of highlights, really. Um, another one which is a, a big highlight of the original book is Way in the Middle of the Air. And this illustration here is from the first magazine appearance of the story, which happened the same year as the Martian Chronicles, although, although I believe this story was written a couple of years earlier but it didn't see print until 1950. I think Bradbury had difficulty placing this story with any of the magazines because of the difficult themes that it dealt with. It's a profoundly anti-racist story and it's set on Earth. It's one of the few stories in the book that's set on Earth and it's set in the Deep South and it's in this sort of uh, the, the era of the Jim Crow laws. Um, and basically what happens in the story is that all the black people who are totally downtrodden and sick of being abused, they decide they've had enough. They're going to totally leave. They're going to go off to Mars. And so they do. Um, there's this tide uh, of people fleeing from the towns, leaving behind all the racist white folks um, as the black folks go off to, to find a new home and a new future for themselves. The story was withdrawn from some later editions of the book, and I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. The decision to remove it was Bradbury's, I should say, um, and it's. I think it's fair to say that the story is a little bit uncomfortable um, to a modern reader. Apart from anything else, it uses the N-word and it uses the, the vernacular of the racists in the mouths of the racist characters, but it is a profoundly anti-racist story. Um, and I was quite interested a week or so ago, the American writer, um, Californian writer, I think, um, Catherine H. Ross, uh, did a lecture where she talked about the influence of Bradbury on her writing. And she referred to an article she'd written earlier in the year, which I went to, to have a look at because I wasn't familiar with the article. And Catherine Ross wrote this. She wrote, when I first read this story as a teenager, it struck me between the eyes and moved me to tears. The narrative is many things. A white man writing for and not about black people. A story that suggests the clutches of racism are so strong and so perverse that the only escape is an entirely new world. The first time I ever thought about black people in the sci-fi future. And to me that's a really profound statement that this anti-racist story had such a profound effect on somebody who is a black writer, a young black person. Um, and the comment there about um, the only escape being to find an entirely new world, I think is really quite a radical solution. And that's possibly why the story was difficult for Bradbury to sell, because it's such a radical notion that the whole um, population of black people would uh, rebel and find their own way um, was a, a deeply threatening idea back in the 1950s. I'll say a bit more about that story in a while. Just to round off the, the storytelling, a couple of other chapters in the book. One story that I personally like a lot, but it's perhaps not so well known as some of the others. Many of these others that I've talked about have been reprinted countless times. They've um, not only been in Bradbury's books, but they've appeared loads of times in magazines and anthologies and collections, themed collections of stories and sort of Hall of Fame science fiction books and that sort of thing. Um, 
This one isn't so well known. Um, originally published under the title Impossible, but in the book it's called The Martian. This is another one that existed before the book was published. Um, this one is about a, an old couple living on Mars. They've lost their son. And one day in the middle distance they see what they think is their son. Turns out it's a Martian, one of the few surviving Martians who's come down from the hills um, and has this strange magical ability to turn into whoever you are thinking about. Now for a while they, they, they reach a nice equilibrium that the old couple are able to adopt this Martian as their son and he is able to feel safe in their in their home. But there comes a time where he has to go to town with uh, with the folks, with the old folks. And once he's in the town and he's surrounded by people, he suddenly finds that the identity he has adopted is no longer stable. He has to, um, out of his control, turn into the identity of whoever these other people are. Um, and so he is constantly um, flipping his identity is constantly changing from one person to another to another. It's um, a, obviously a, a, a fantastical notion and a science fictional notion, um, but it's really very moving. Um, and I, I can never quite pin my put my finger on why it is, um, but it's a very very effective story and one of the best written in the whole of the book, in my view. A um, couple of other stories of note, The Long Years, again an old story, two years old by the time it appears in the Martian Chronicles, originally was published mistakenly as being by Roy Bradbury, <laughs> clearly just a typo but an unfortunate one. Um, this is one of the few stories in the book that you could say, well yeah that's science fiction, definitely, because it's got robots in it. Um, it's a scientist living on Mars, his family have died, the only way for him to overcome the loneliness is to build robots, to build replicas of his family. Um, this is a, a recurring theme of Bradbury and it's one of those ideas, people often say Bradbury is anti-technology, but he clearly isn't. He so often writes stories where the way out of loneliness or despair is through technology, through robots, except his robots tend not to be the sort of tin men um, vision of robots. His robots tend to be robots that look and behave just like people. And I think that's quite far thinking of him. And if we look at the the kind of things that we're seeing on, on TV and in film these days, things like Ex Machina and um, Humans and Westworld, we're seeing lots of things which are questioning that sort of crossover of when a thing ceases to be a machine and when does it become human. And Bradbury was dealing with all these issues in his stories way back in the 40s and 50s. Um, so The Long Years is a very good example of that form. And the last story I'll mention is the last story in the book, The Million Year Picnic. Um, and this is one of the oldest. This, this was four years old when it appeared in the Martian Chronicles. Some sources will tell you that Bradbury wrote this deliberately as the end of the Martian Chronicles or that he knew that it would always be the, the last chapter. Um, that actually isn't true. Uh, my friend and colleague John Eller has researched uh, Bradbury's putting together of the book and has found earlier tables of contents that Bradbury put together, kind of speculative tables of contents. Um, and in at least one of those, the Million Year Picnic was not the end story, it was somewhere near the middle. 
But nevertheless, it is a perfect ending to the book. What happens in the Million Year Picnic, by this point, um, the Earth has been destroyed, there's been a terrible war, humans are unable to um, live with each other, and they've blown the place up. There's, I suppose, a handful of survivors who've made it to the planet Mars, or who were trapped on the planet Mars when the Earth was destroyed. Um, and these are, if you like, the last hope of humanity. And the, the book ends with this story where there's a, uh, a family, parents and children, setting off um, on the canals of Mars. And the father has promised to the children, I'm going to show you the Martians. And the, the kids keep saying, when are we going to see the Martians, Daddy? When are we going to see the Martians? And he says, soon, soon. Eventually, he takes them to a place and he tells them to look into the water. So they lean over and they look into the canal and they see their own reflections. And he says, there, there are the Martians. You are the Martians. We are the Martians. Now, it's a very moving ending. It's, on the one hand, it's saying, we're the last survivors of humanity. We own this place now. But it's also uh, happening while they've been touring Mars and looking at the ruins of the Martian civilization. So they know that what they've in inherited, if you like, um, is is not a, a pleasure palace it's it's a ruin and it's a ruin that is the fault of humankind that ending is also saying you are the martians now is basically saying you are not earth people anymore you cannot go back earth has been destroyed um, and i think a third possible interpretation of the story is well okay you're here and you've got this new planet to play with but look at the mess you made of the previous one. Who's to say that this is going to turn out any better? So from a very simple metaphorical ending of we are the Martians now and looking at the reflections in the water, um, you actually have a really multifaceted, multidimensional emotional um, impact when you read that final story. I think it's one of the best stories Bradbury ever wrote. And the fact that he wrote it before he put together the Martian Chronicles is quite astonishing. Um, but it's the perfect finish to the book. I'm going to talk about what happened next. So after the book was published, um, what happened in the wake of the Martian Chronicles. But before I do that, um, I'd just like to put up some of Bradbury's own comments on the book. Um, Bradbury was acutely aware that what he had put together was not a novel and it wasn't a short story collection. He called it a tapestry and a half-cousin to a novel, so he knew it was something strange uh, in its own terms. He also knew that it was not science fiction. He was adamant that this was a work of fantasy. This is not because he disliked the term, by the way. He always claimed that Fahrenheit 451 was science fiction. But the Martian Chronicles? No, it's fantasy. And this is what he said. How come the Martian Chronicles is often described as science fiction? It misfits that description. If it had been practical, technologically efficient science fiction, it would have long since fallen to rust by the road. So Bradbury recognises that if he had grounded it in real science, um, it probably wouldn't have had much of a shelf life. But what he was doing in the book, in his view, was actually constructing myth. And 
what he said was, myth seen in mirrors, incapable of being touched, stays on. If it is not immortal, it almost seems such. Now, OK, maybe he is making a claim for, for the immortality of the book there, but I think he's hedging his bets a little bit. Um, but what he is very much recognising is the power of a good fantasy story to stick around and have an emotional and intellectual impact on the reader, which a science fiction book may not be able to sustain, because once the the technological framework, the scientific framework behind a work of science fiction falls out of fashion or out of favour, then the book itself loses its value. So what happens after the Martian, Chronicle, Martian Chronicles is published? Well, the Martian Chronicles is, I would say, an unstable text. Now, what the hell does he mean by that? Well, it's an unstable text in many ways. Here's one of the ways. If you pick up a first edition, or really any edition up to about 1996, of the Martian Chronicles, you'll see the table of contents something like this, starting January 1999. Pick up a later edition, and you'll see this. All of the years have moved on by 31. And clearly what was happening here, um, once we got to 1997, it was clear that the new century, the new millennium was fast approaching and all of the material in the Martian Chronicles was in danger of being out of date. So it was, I believe, Bradbury's idea to update the dates. So he simply shifted everything along. But of course, we're fast approaching 2030 now. So what should happen then? Should we shift the dates on even further? Anyway, this in itself doesn't make the Martian Chronicles an unstable text, but what it does mean is that you could pick up two editions of the Martian Chronicles and find that actually you've got two different books there, at least in terms of the table of contents. So that's not a big deal. But one year after the Martian Chronicles was published, the British edition came out from a British publisher, but with a different title. The Silver Locusts. I'm guessing that Martian was not considered to be a very sellable title in Britain, so they went for something a bit more poetic. And it comes from one of Bradbury's stories in the book. He refers to the all the spaceships flying off to Mars in formation being like a, a swarm of locusts, um, or you could think of it as a plague of locusts which is going to attack the planet Mars. So the title of the book is fine. But because the book came out a year after The Martian Chronicles, Bradbury had a bit more time to think about the contents of the book, and he requested some changes. So in the British edition, uh, I believe you will find uh, one story taken out and another one put in in its place. And over the passing years, other changes occur as well. So again, you could pick up two editions of The Martian Chronicles. You could read one, a friend could read one. You could then compare notes and discover that you've actually read different books. Not totally different, but books with differences between them. Um, incidentally, The Silver Locusts continued to be the British title of the book right up until about 1980, when the TV miniseries based on The Martian Chronicles came out, and the British publishers obviously decided they could sell a few more books if their book now had the same title as the TV series. So in 1980 you saw this switch over um, from Panther, the UK publisher, from Silver Locusts to the Martian Chronicles. But other changes 
happened to the book over time. So I've, I've called this slide Sometimes Chronicled, Sometimes Not. If you look through various editions of the Martian Chronicles, you may or may not find a story called Usher 2. You may or may not find a story called The Fire Balloons, The Wilderness, Way in the Middle of the Air. Now, in all cases, whether you leave in or take out these stories, it doesn't make a huge difference to the story, but it does shift the emphasis slightly. So, for example, the story The Fire Balloons is one of the few stories with a religious theme or questions of faith. So including that in the book shifts the tone of the book ever so slightly. Um, the story we heard about earlier, Way in the Middle of the Air, is the profoundly anti-racist story. Taking that out of the book, again, changes the balance of the book. Now, Bradbury took it out because he believed that it was overtaken by events. He thought of all the stories in the book, it was the one that was least credible, not because of any science fictional reasoning, but simply because it depicted an American South that he thought didn't exist anymore. Um, he may well have been wrong in that regard, but I think removing it from the book is probably right, simply because of the language issue. Um, but there are variant versions of the Martian Chronicles. That makes it an unstable book. The Martian Chronicles casts a long shadow, is my next claim. Um, and really what I'm suggesting here is precisely because the book is made up of short stories which can be taken in isolation, the book and its contents have been adapted many, many times. The individual short stories have turned up in all sorts of radio adaptations over the years, American adaptations in series Escape, Dimension X, X-1, Bradbury 13, and the whole book has been adapted a couple of times for radio. Um, there was a version by Colonial Radio, radio Theatre and a rather poor version by the BBC, although it had Derek Jacobi in it, so, you know, it, it, it got some headlines because of that. So the individual stories keep coming back in the radio medium and the book keeps coming back in the radio medium. And visually as well, um, there's a, a whole line of influence that you can trace through the TV series The Twilight Zone, which I, I won't go into in any detail, but there's at least a couple of episodes which look remarkably like stories from The Martian Chronicles. Bradbury had some small involvement in the series, um, but the influence of Bradbury and the Martian Chronicles, I think, is bigger through the series. But that's a discussion for another day. Bradbury's own TV series of the 1980s and the 1990s, almost a unique series um, where he wrote all the episodes himself, 65 of them. Um, he adapted a number of the stories from the Martian Chronicles, some of them successfully, some of them not. And of course, those of us of a certain age will remember Rock Hudson on the planet Mars around 1980, a rather lacklustre TV miniseries. Um, Bradbury himself said it was boring, and he got told off by NBC television, who told him he couldn't say that, but he said it anyway. Um, anyway, Bradbury had spent decades trying to get The Martian Chronicles onto the screen, and he'd written a number of screenplays over the years and um, none of them had sold, and he was always bitterly disappointed at his inability to get the show on the screen. Um, it eventually got there, and when it did, it was written by somebody else, and it was poorly directed, 
which is a great shame. I mentioned a long shadow. I claimed the Martian Chronicles had a long shadow. Because of Bradbury's um, interest in space, as expressed really just in that one book, it's, it's really the only book that contains stories about space. There are one or two stories in a couple of other short story collections he put out, but this is the only sustained space book that he published. He somehow became a spokesman for the space age during the 1960s and onwards. He uh, wrote some articles for Life magazine which were about the space race. He interviewed astronauts for Life magazine, so you know, he journalistically he became very involved um, in the reality of the space race and he found himself being interviewed all the time about the reality of getting people to the moon and onward to Mars. And in the early 70s, when the Mariner 9 probe became the first probe to really get good close-up views of the planet Mars, he was called into a symposium by three major planetary scientists, uh, Walter Sullivan, Bruce Murray, Carl Sagan, and he and Arthur C. Clarke were the sort of representatives of science fiction, if you like. Um, and this was the first of many, many engagements that he had with real scientists, real space scientists. And it led to an ongoing relationship with um, NASA and JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, based in Pasadena. He would often give speeches there, he was always a welcome guest, he got standing ovations whenever he addressed scientists there. He even um, was allowed to drive a Mars rover, or at least a, a replica of one, for which he received his Mars driving licence. Um, so this most unscientific of authors, who even claimed that his book is not science fiction, was nevertheless well in with the scientists. Um, and when he died in 2012, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory posted a, uh, an excerpt from that Mars symposium um, showing Bradbury reading one of his poems. So he was really held in very high regard by space scientists. And in 2015 there was a limited edition version of the Martian Chronicles that came out with an introduction which included uh, this passage of text. Could it be possible that we are forever unable to go beyond who we were? Will every great opportunity of discovery be tainted, tarred and eventually destroyed by our own clumsy, brutish hand? This is talking about those repeated failures uh, within the Martian Chronicles of the human beings. The introduction goes on to say, if the answer was simply yes, if this book stopped there, it could not have lasted. And possibly therein lies its longevity and its ability to both challenge and inspire successive generations of readers. So this introduction absolutely recognises that the Martian Chronicles succeeds because it shows us the baggage that we bring with us whenever we move forward into the future. And yet we have to overcome that. Uh, in order to find the bright new day. Um, this particular introduction was written by Chris Hadfield, who you may know as the Canadian astronaut, you know the guy who sang David Bowie songs in the International Space Station. So another prime example of Bradbury's art influencing somebody involved in space. I'm going to wrap it up there, but just to sum up, I'm claiming that the Martian Chronicles looks to the future by looking to the past, um, and I hope I've demonstrated that in various ways this evening. I maintain that it's an unstable text because the book keeps changing, or it seems to. 
Some people will say, ah, it's not that much of a change. But I swear to you, pick up an, an edition of The Martian Chronicles and you cannot guarantee that you've got the same version as I have. And The Martian Chronicles has cast a very long shadow and is still relevant to this day. So I shall finish by saying happy birthday, The Martian Chronicles, and happy 100th birthday to Ray Bradbury. Well, that brings us to the end of this slightly different Bradbury 100. I hope you enjoyed hearing some of these highlights from the Bradbury centenary year. Next week brings us to the last regular episode of Bradbury 100. I need to take a break from it, unfortunately, although I do expect to do occasional further episodes in the future. But to bring the regular series to a close, I'll be talking to Howard V. Hendricks, a science fiction writer and scholar of science fiction, who is uniquely placed to give an appreciation of Ray Bradbury and his legacy. So please join me next week for a special episode of Bradbury 100. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk.